0: Welcome to the discussion, Transforming Federal HR Processes, sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion.
1: My guest today is John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer of the National Weather Service, which is part of NOAA in the Department of Commerce. John, welcome to the discussion.
2: Thanks a lot, Jason. Glad to be here.
1: Now, John, we are coming to each other through Skype. This is very exciting. This is a First of a kind for a video teleconference. We're going to have a great conversation. And this is a, a timely conversation as well, as the chief learning officer has really garnered a much larger place in the federal, I'll call it, pantheon of CXOs. Over the last few years, I think the realization is, is true that uh, training, education of employees cannot be overlooked or pushed aside, especially when budgets tighten. And with the Trump administration's goal to reskill or upskill employees and apply automation, the CLO, I think, becomes even more important. Let's start with some basics. The National Weather Service, you guys are a big organization. Everyone depends on you. Uh, Most people don't realize they depend on you, but we all do. So talk a little bit about NWS and your role as the Chief Learning Officer. Yeah, the
2: National Weather Service plays a critical role in uh, saving lives and property, and that's really our mission, is is protection of life and property and also enhancement of the national economy. So we're kind of small and mighty as federal agencies go. We're about four thousand, forty-two hundred people strong. We've got our headquarters in Silver Spring, Maryland there, but we've also have our primary training facility out here in Kansas City, Missouri, where I'm at. But we serve 122 offices across the country. So one of the strengths of the National Weather Service and the federal government is we are where our customer are, uh, that we serve emergency management, we serve all different federal agencies and ultimately serve the public and in, in trying to save them from severe storms and, and alerting them ahead of time. So we're trying to build a weather ready nation and we're doing that through partnerships with our emergency managers and my role and that is the chief learning officer, is to make sure that our staff is prepared to do their jobs when it really matters most.
1: I love that, a, a weather-ready nation in many weather ways. Weather-ready nation, yeah. And, and here in the D.C. area, as you well know, it's all about traffic and it's all about weather, especially for our sister station, WTOP. And, you know, if you've heard of that, that station, it's on the 8s, you know. Yes. All right. Yeah,
2: I, I used to I used to live and work in the D.C. area, so uh, Excellent. very familiar.
1: So let's talk about your role a little bit. You, you said get the staff, uh, ensure they're ready to, to help the rest of the nation. Let's talk about your strategy for training and development of, of the workforce.
2: Really, the whole strategy is to Train the entire workforce. You know, Weather Service has a rich, rich history of training, uh, dating back well into the 50s and and beyond. But what what's really changed in the past several years is a real emphasis on training from the corporate level. Training had been you know kind of buried in the organizational structure in the past. And about five years ago, uh, when Dr. Uccellini came on board as as assistant administrator for uh, Weather Services, uh, he has a real passion for training. And as we were going through a headquarters reorganization, we we really identified that we needed to take training and make it a corporate function of who we are and what we do. Sure, we train meteorologists and hydrologists and, and scientists and things like that. But we also have to make sure that our equipment is running optimally. So we are training electronics technicians and IT staff to make sure that the radars are working when we need them the most, when the networks are up, when we need them the most uh also administrative staff uh facility staff if it's uh if it's raining and the roof is leaking on our on our uh, computer farms that that's a bad day and we can't meet our mission so the real shift has been to to take that that training role and make it part of that c-suite as you were talking about uh as a chief learning officer so we can now oversee the entire organization and try to or train everybody that's that's out there
1: when you talk about the idea of a corporate function, that's a very, if you will, private sector view. Is is that the type of approach you guys have taken? Is okay, what's happening in the private sector? You're seeing some trends and saying, okay, now how can we apply them to what we do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, we're certainly a governmental agency, and 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 the office of the chief learning officer is part of that uh, infrastructure. But we work with uh, the, the Maisie Foundation. We work with a lot of external. CLOs, Uh, I I go to conferences and have have networked with a lot of people over the years. And so we are. We're really trying to modernize training. Uh, It's slow. It's tedious. Are we there yet? Not completely. But have we made a lot of strides? Absolutely. And and it all all goes down to the way we're funded as well. Certainly, the National Weather Service gets their budgets, and we've got six different portfolios and how we get our money. But what's different is that I don't really necessarily get a base budget. I work with the different portfolios within the, uh, within the Weather Service headquarters to fund that. Uh, the real benefit is, is they, they've got skin in the game. So if we have a new piece of technology, like a new satellite that was just launched, if we've got decision support services and things like that, and we're doing a nationwide rollout of something new, they've got skin in the game, they know that they have training needs, and then they carve out a certain portion of their budget to help fund that training. And the results have been incredible, the training budgets, As a result have gone up because i just don't manage a a budget i've got a lot of partners and i've got a lot of uh, stakeholders if you will within the weather service that help fund the training
1: that's a very interesting approach for many reasons number one it makes your role less of the person who says we will do this training to almost the person who has to convince and encourage and you play cheerleader to a certain extent to be like well this is why it's important and have to get them on board. What does that mean for you as the CLO?
2: Oh, that's, that's a lot of my job is to work with the field offices, those 122 forecast offices and all the national centers from the National Hurricane Center to Storm Prediction Center and beyond, find out what their real training needs are as we're going uh, forward into new fiscal years, and then to work with those uh, senior leaders within the budget portfolios to, to really fight for and get the resources we
1: need to train the workforce. You talked about training has gone up, the, the, at least the budgeting of that. Can you point to a reason why, or have you seen kind of a trend of why it's gone up, M- meaning that there's been an understanding of value, or or is it somebody pressing from the top?
2: It's a little bit of everything, uh, certainly pressing from the top. As I mentioned earlier, Dr. Uchulini is a huge proponent of training and, and very supportive, so it, it certainly helps to have that support from the top. But the demand from the field offices as well, as, as we become more highly technical, the more new things that get rolled out, we're, we're also an aging workforce, so we have a lot of new employees that are coming in. So it's really a, a big part of our succession planning is that, you know, how do we how do we develop the leaders of the future? How do we develop the new hires that are coming in to help meet the mission as well? So it, it, it's multi-tiered, but, you know, we, we really bottomed out in training and, and it, it, was, it was an external force. Uh, as we went through the sequester years uh, several years ago, you know, our budget from 2000, uh, which was the end of our modernization, through about 2009, 2010, was kind of flatlined. as non labor about $5 million, which you can do some stuff with, but, uh, and we were maintaining. But when the sequester hit, our non labor budget literally dropped to $825,000. And we came to a screeching halt as far as training was going at that point. It was also coincident with the reorganization of our headquarters and taking training and moving it up into the, uh, into the corporate ladder a little bit. I report to the deputy director of the Weather Service, so that gives me a lot of visibility as far as the rest of the organization. But It also gives me the support we need to help go out there. So as a result, the budgets are now non-labor about eight to nine million. So they, we've, we've really made a significant improvement have we trained everything that we want to train? Absolutely not. I don't think we'll ever get to that point. But we are in a lot better shape today than we were about seven or eight years ago.
1: That's a fascinating and unfortunate picture of, of of a drop at, you know, 5 million to about 825,000. It's it's great to hear you guys are back up to 8 or 9 million. Do you feel like you've caught up from the post sequester <laughs> world or are you still kind of up um, on that curve on the top, moving up to the top getting end of there. the
2: curve? Yeah, we're, we're really getting there. We're we're back as far as we're able to do the things that we were able to do prior to the sequester. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, the, the Weather Ready Nation, we've got a lot of new initiatives that are going on across the National Weather Service. So Uh, the shift from it's not good enough just to put out the forecast and warning. We need to be able to communicate that better to our core partners, the emergency managers, so they can make smart decisions. And so we're doing a lot of training on that. So not only are you a scientist, you're now becoming a communicator so our partners can make smart decisions and save lives. We've got a lot of new technology that's that's coming down. We just had a, a launch Uh, earlier this week of COSMIC, which is gonna give us whole new data sets. The GOES-R series uh, for satellites, uh, new polar satellites that are out there, uh, new convective allowing models. So there's a lot of new things going on that that we need to train on. And so, you know, the training demand's not going to go away anytime soon.
1: And I think the other piece of this, and I think you brought this up, is around the workforce. When you talk about an aging workforce, uh, I I know National Weather Service, like several agencies around the government, people stay there. People love their job. It's almost yeah. the pinnacle of their job. Hey, I want to be a meteorologist. Boom. I have my job at the national weather service. I'm not leaving. So do you have this, if you will, the bathtub effect that we hear often where you have a lot of kind of early career people and then a lot of later career people with that middle is is, is bottomed out a little bit.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I
1: haven't, haven't graphed it out. I, what I do know is, is
2: roughly a third of our workforce can retire within the next five years. And so that doesn't mean they will leave right? And everybody retires when they want to retire. But, uh, you know, we definitely know that there's going to be a bubble. I'm a meteorologist, too. I have that affliction. Uh, Many of the people that work for the National Weather Service, especially the meteorologists, are doing it because they've had a love for weather from a very early age. I know, you know, I had a big weather event in my life when I was four or five years old and and, uh, scared the bejeebers out of me. But later in life, you know, helped me figure out how weather ticks. And and, and I had no other career goal other than to be a meteorologist with the weather service. And so a lot of our workforce in, is in that same boat uh, and it's great to get paid for your your passion. So how does that tie into training? It's 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 a love as well. So even our instructors that are here in Kansas City and Norman and Boulder, uh, Boulder, Colorado, they're all in it to, to help each other uh, to where, again, we can meet the mission better.
1: And I imagine the fact that you've done the job before helps you with that training, with the coming up with the curriculum, understanding like what what maybe some of the younger people, if you will, are going through or some of the uh, people at the newer part of their careers. At the same time, you, you probably also understand what more advanced people need in terms of training. So you're kind of, you're kind of at that perfect spot in, in some ways.
2: Yeah. And, and, and that's something that is kind of unique to the chief learning officer uh, position is that we all come from different paths. Uh, you know, some are traditional trainers and, and maybe have a degree in instructional design or something like that. But as I, as I network, the chief learning officers come from all walks of life. And so, yeah, I do feel like I have a really good understanding of the organization. I've worked, uh, I started off as a GS5 intern uh, in, in Jackson, Kentucky, and I've kind of worked my way up throughout, throughout my career. I've worked both in the field at Weather Service headquarters as well as a regional office. So it gives me a good viewpoint of, of, of what's going on out there and what their needs are. Uh, more than that, it, it really helped build a network so I know everybody out there and so I can work with them to find out what the needs of the field are so we can try to meet those needs.
1: All right, there's plenty to talk about, but let's take a quick break. My guest is John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer of the National Weather Service, which is a part of NOAA in the Department of Commerce. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to the discussion providing a modern learning experience sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News
0: Network. Numbers tell us a lot, like 64, the percentage of government agencies who think they fall short on talent management programs. That leads to unhappy employees. When people are checked out, it reflects on their work and your agency. One, that's the number of talent management solutions you need to engage your employees. Do it all with Cornerstone. Stay compliant while giving people tools to meet development goals. Agencies thrive by helping their people realize their potential. Stay successful with FedRAMP-authorized Cornerstone. Cornerstoneondemand.com.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, providing a modern learning experience, sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand. On Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer of the National Weather Service, which is part of NOAA in the Department of Commerce. Now, John, before break, we're getting to know you a little bit, understanding your approach to training, workforce development. Let's talk one step down and talk about the idea of developing leaders. And and I know that a leader is not necessarily a position, but it's a person. But you still have to ensure that each person, no matter where they are in the organization, has those characteristics and capabilities that we're talking about. So talk about the National Weather Service's approach.
2: And I don't know that it's that different from other places, but it's, it's, it's the part I know. Uh, you know, leadership certainly is a position. I hold a leadership position within the National Weather Service. But as I mentioned earlier, we've we've got a a workforce that uh, will have a lot of retirements, and we need to develop the leaders of the future. And so a a lot of our approach for leadership development is that, um, you know, leadership is a behavior. It's not necessarily a position. So, you know, at any given time, you may be the star of the show. And so as an example, If you're in a major tornado outbreak in the Midwest, for example, and you're having some technical issues. In fact, I'll use a real example back of of a tornado outbreak in Indianapolis when I was working there. And the fact of the matter is, is that we had a sick radar. We had parts that went bad. And for 12 hours, our electronics technicians were there working on that radar, trying to get us as much data as we possibly could. We were still using surrounding radars as backup radars. But the fact of the matter is we couldn't do our job without those electronic technicians that day. And they helped us make the mission and they were the ones that really saved the day. So when I talk about leadership as a behavior, that was it. Both of those guys came in, it was a weekend, it was a holiday weekend, Memorial Day, you have the Indianapolis 500 going. One of the guys was actually at the race, left the race to come to work to help get the radar up so we could actually do our job during a very significant tornado outbreak. So. Uh, Leadership comes from all levels, and and those are the types of things that we start to lay down that foundation from the very first year that you join the Weather Service. So uh, it took us a long time. About three years ago, we started a new hire orientation program, and uh, we bring in every new hire to the Weather Service in here to Kansas City and really start laying down that foundation, trying to create the culture that we want is that leadership comes from everywhere Uh, and everyone plays a role plays a role in meeting the mission. And so it doesn't matter if you're an administrative assistant. We need to make sure we have the supplies we need to make sure that we can do do our job. The electronics folks are making sure that the equipment's running optimally. The forecasters have got the highest skill sets, so they can meet the mission as well. And so you very quickly realize that we're extremely reliant on one another. And that at any given moment, you may be the one coming up with the idea or doing the act to save the day.
1: Especially when you talk about the National Weather Service, where you have people who love what they do. We talked about this earlier. People who've always wanted to be meteorologists or or work in the weather sector, and now they're there, and they don't always want to be a manager. They don't always want to be somebody who is in charge of other people, but they still need those leadership qualities. And I think you you brought this up. I think that's a great point because a lot of agencies— end up promoting the people who are technically sound but not necessarily fit for leadership and and just because you're a leader doesn't mean you have to be in a leadership position
2: absolutely you know one of the one of the simple definitions of leadership is influence and so how are you going to influence the process and you can do that from anywhere and you don't necessarily need to be a manager to do that and you're absolutely right not everybody wants to be a manager and because they're entirely different skill sets and so and that's another area we're also working on is how do we do better about hiring effective managers and supervisors and 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 you were alluding to it two things happen you take your best your best person your best technical person and say wow they are really spectacular we should make them the boss and then two things sometimes happen is one you lose your your best technician or forecaster in our case and you may gain your worst supervisor because they're entirely different skill sets. So something that we're working on is to hire the right people as managers and supervisors. And you don't have to be a manager and supervisor to be successful in a career. If you're a great forecaster and that's what you want to do, that's good. We like that. I've, I've progressed through my career and, and uh, you know, hopefully I was good at both. But you got to find the right people and put them in the right chair at the right time.
1: I want to go down that path of how you're ensuring you're hiring effective managers and supervisors. Before I do that, I think I want to get back to one other thing you mentioned, which was around bringing people to Kansas City, all new hires. Too often that new hire orientation is done online now, or it's done kind of piecemeal where, okay, I'm in New York, we'll do it in New York, or I'm in Boston, I'll do it in Boston. But by bringing everyone to Kansas City and bringing them, whether it's for one day or five days, it really doesn't matter. It's a it's a culture you're you're creating because everyone hears the same presentation. Is that really key as part of that workforce development, that that training piece?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the feedback has been tremendous from from those that have come here. And it's important to know it's not all early career. OK, so certainly we have a lot of early career people coming right out of college. But we're also bringing in people that are vets uh, coming out of DOD. We also have people, maybe they were a 20-year employee at NASA who transferred to the Weather Service. They're entirely different cultures. And so we're bringing them in regardless of age, regardless of how far along in their career they are, to really understand who we are, what we do, and why we do it. And the support from senior leadership has really been tremendous. We have either, either the director, the deputy director, or the chief operations officer come to every single class and spend over a half a day with them. You know, I think back early on in my career, I don't think I set my eyes on a director for probably 15 years, you know? And so it's a really good opportunity to set those expectations of who we are, what we do and why we do it. And that idea came from the field offices. It it came from the bottom up. It was a demand signal that say, hey, you know, I get good training in my local office, but you know, I get it from my manager, I get it from my coworkers and it's very, it's small. It's good, but it's small because it may be the culture of your local office. How do we really set the culture for the entire National Weather Service? And this is one of the tools we use. It's also blended. And so we certainly utilize online modules. And so those are prerequisites that they would take before coming here. So we wanna lay down that foundation of core knowledge. And that way when they are here in residence, because that's expensive, uh, that we really wanna maximize that. So a lot of the work that they're doing is activity based. And so they're learning the organizational structure. They're learning how we work. They were learning what each other do and appreciate that, yeah, the electronics technicians are important to the meteorologists because we need our equipment to run. And so it's really been successful. About three years old. So we're doing some surveys and we're trying to find out if, you know, what the real return on investment is. But anecdotally, from our surveys, it's really been positive.
1: One of the things that if I'm another agency listening to this, the answer is always, well, the National Weather Service, they're small. Right, you guys only have 4,000 employees. I have 100,000 employees or, or 150,000 employees. But this is not about large or small because your budget, as you said, went from $825,000. It was bottomed out. It's really about the leadership and the culture. And I think this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. The corporate, if you will, promise or the corporate focus on training. Is that where this kind of developed over the last three years?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, The money came back. You know, The budgets came back. And that, that certainly helped you know, across the board from from the weather service, our budgets were, were coming back from the sequester days. But uh, it really has been that corporate focus on, hey, training is really important. And it's so easy in federal agencies. And I'm sure it's true in the private sector too. when when, when revenues are, are dropping, well, we're going to drop training and we're going to drop travel and, and, and all of those things. And anymore, we think twice before that happens. So uh, we'll see what happens during the next downturn, but right now we're, we're, we're about as good as we've ever
1: been and uh, really happy about that. that. That's obviously really good news and I think other agencies can learn from what you guys are doing. You also mentioned earlier on about we're really taking a look at how we can make sure we're hiring and training effective managers and supervisors. Walk me through what that's looking like and, and how you are addressing this big challenge.
2: Sure. And, and again, going back to that everyday leadership theory, uh, we build leadership into a lot of the classes that we offer from new hires all the way to the point where you become a supervisor. So that that, that builds that. Uh, is it complete? No, we're still engineering and still creating this, but we have a kind of a stair-step approach to it. And that, you know, as a new employee, as a new hire, you need to know yourself. You need to know who you are and what you're good at and what you're not good at, and maybe where you can improve upon. And then as you move on to your career, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're a team member. And so how can you be a contributing team member uh, within your work group, if you're working on extra projects and things like that. Further along, you show some more expertise and you find yourself, you're a team lead. You're not quite a supervisor yet, but you have more influence and you have the ability to lead a team. And so what what are the, the, the skills and abilities that you need to, to do that? And then further along in your career, all of a sudden you've become the supervisor. And so we've got training for those new supervisors and and, and it's, a to, again, totally different skill set from that. And then ultimately we wanna to get to that executive level. So we, we take our senior execs and, and we work with the Federal Executive Institute in, uh, in Charlottesville, but what other opportunities are out there even for our senior executives to sharpen that saw to keep them on top of their game. So, you know, it's a little bit broken, uh, you know, certainly a, a little more resources would help, but uh, we're doing the best we can. But that's the overall philosophy is we grow people from early on in their career to, the next thing you know, you might be uh, in charge of something big.
1: And this training is not just for new hires. This training, when we talk about supervisors and managers, is for anybody at any point in their career. People come, as you mentioned, maybe over from NASA to be a manager or supervisor or people who have come up through the ranks like yourself, starting as a GS5 intern. So you're really finding that, that balance of, okay, let's identify the people and then make sure that they can succeed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's ultimately what it's all about is uh, providing the resources out there for people to to succeed, um, which brings me a, a, just a little side note here, the difference between training and learning. You know, Jason, I can train you to do a lot of things, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can repeat the behavior. And that's on you. That's, that's a personal accountability piece. So uh, I could train you to do, I don't know, I could train you how to issue a warning but in the heat of the battle, could you actually repeat that behavior? Maybe so, maybe not. If you can repeat that behavior, then you've learned something. That's the difference between training and learning. And that's that's also been a shift uh, that we've been, been making here in the weather service, and it's been happening all across the corporate world as well, is it's a two-way street. Uh, training is nice. Uh, I can spend a lot of money and I can do a lot of training, but unless the person's behavior actually changes and they've learned something and they've changed the way they do things for the better then you know is it really good or not and so ultimately that's our goal is to change those behaviors in in how you do your job
1: it's funny because it's a very similar discussion of the difference between data and information Right. Data creates information, does information create data? So I, I like, I like <laughs> yeah. that, training versus learning. John, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation. One of the big areas is retention. I think we'll jump into that next. My guest is John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer of the National Weather Service, which is part of NOAA at the Department of Commerce. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to the discussion, providing a modern learning experience, sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network
0: numbers tell us a lot like 64 the percentage of government agencies who think they fall short on talent management programs that leads to unhappy employees when people are checked out it reflects on their work and your agency one that's the number of talent management solutions you need to engage your employees Do it all with Cornerstone. Stay compliant while giving people tools to meet development goals. Agencies thrive by helping their people realize their potential. Stay successful with FedRAMP-authorized Cornerstone. Cornerstoneondemand.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion,
1: providing a modern learning experience, sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer of the National Weather Service, which is a part of NOAA in the Department of Commerce. John, before break, we were talking a little bit about the idea of training, training supervisors. Another piece of this discussion that we, I think we should hit upon is around retention. And one of the things that comes up is people, well, I want to feel like I'm learning something, like my career is moving forward. How big of a role does your office, does, does the learning environment play in that retention? Or is it just maybe a small piece of the broader puzzle for around employee retention?
2: training certainly does play a role in employee retention. They feel like they can do their jobs better. They're going to be happier in their job. If they have a better trained supervisor uh, and and, and they're treated well and encouraged to to, to move on in their careers, that certainly helps with retention. Uh, You know, there's a a lot of statistics out there is that that people don't necessarily quit their job. They quit their boss uh, because they don't necessarily have the best boss ever. Uh, So if we can have better supervisors, that certainly helps. But a lot of our, our, our retention in the weather service is interesting because as we talked about, we're doing what we love. And so in general, our, our retention is pretty good. Uh, where we struggle in particular is with women uh, and, and, my, and other minorities in, in that um, it's a work-life balance. Thing. Most of our jobs aren't office jobs Monday through Friday, nine to five. We're open 24 seven, 365 days a year. And many of us take jobs in places that are not our hometowns. So, you know, I grew up in Chicago. I moved to rural Kentucky. I've been in Indianapolis, Kansas City, Wichita, D.C. I've moved all over the place. And so, when you have a family, uh, it gets really difficult because you don't necessarily have the family structure uh, where you're living. Uh, you're working 24 7. You don't necessarily have daycare uh, when you're working the midnight shift and things like that. And so, uh, work-life balance is a real struggle. Uh, and I don't know the training is going to fix that, but it's certainly a concern that we have in the weather service and, and, a, and a topic that we're heavily working on.
1: And it sounds like because you are so involved, not just your office, but the management, the CXOs are so involved in this effort, that it's probably something that they are probably paying close attention to because the cost to... Uh, lose an employee and then have to retrain them or train a new employee is very high. And I, I've, we've had this discussion a lot in the private sector about the importance of retention. So I imagine that's something that's on the list of your chief human capital officer and, and other executives.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a topic we talk about all the time. Uh, and, and how do we make it a better workplace? How do we make it a more accepting workplace? And, you know, given the fact that we are shift workers and we do need to be open 24 seven because the weather doesn't stop. But how do we do this in a way that can be family friendly and, right. and employee friendly. And so it, it's a difficult puzzle to solve, uh, but something that we're working on all the time.
0: You
1: mentioned training obviously plays a role, encouraged to have a career. Let's talk about how you guys are training the employees you have. Uh, the courses have, have, I imagine, have evolved. You've mentioned a whole bunch of new technology that you guys have launched, new satellites, new new abilities to really track and understand what weather's doing. So. Walk me through some of the courses that you guys are currently using, but also how they've evolved.
2: They've evolved a lot. Uh, I think back, I've been in federal government now close to 30 years, and, you know, everything was in residence. So you had to learn how to, you know, issue warnings and interpret radar data. You went to a month-long school. If you needed to learn how to do something else, you went to another school. And technology has certainly helped out with that. So online computer-based modules, everybody's taken those. And I think everybody is say, oh, gosh, not another one of those. Um, You know, they're important. The way we do it is that we are very blended. So we try to use the right tool for the right job at the right time. And so there is a time and a place for computer-based modules. And where we try to do that is prerequisites. We want to lay down some foundational information for you. And maybe that's all you need. And if that's all you need, that's good. But then we might take it to the next level where we have an instructor-based webinar, uh, kind of like our conversation that we're doing right now. We can have interactive classes, but we can do them at a distance. So we've got you know, PowerPoint presentations, we've got video presentations and things we can do, but technology allows us to be interactive with those things. So we can have quiz questions, we can have survey questions and, and ways to engage the student to where they're not just sitting and listening to somebody read slides sort of thing. And then ultimately, If we need to, then we do the in-residence training, and that's where it's important that we have it activity-based. We don't wanna cover the foundation. That was covered in the webinar. That was covered in the computer-based module. So how do we actually demonstrate we can be great leaders? How do we actually demonstrate we can maintain the radar? And with our electronics, we do a lot more uh, in-residence training because it's a safety issue for our employees. You know, when they're sticking their hands into 10,000 volts into a uh, wsr 80 d radar we don't want them doing that virtually for the first time we want them to actually put their hands on the equipment and do it safely so we can you know we we, we don't need big issues as far as, as safety concerns so so we do that uh some of the other cool things that we're doing is that uh youtube videos and we've noticed through our analytics that if a youtube video exceeds two minutes people stop paying attention and so they've gotta be really quick hitting things. And that, that, we, that the employees just don't have training days like we used to have. So you might have an entire day where you could sit down and do a four hour computer module or something like that. Uh, we just don't have that luxury anymore. But maybe you're working a slow evening shift and there's not a lot of weather going on, the forecast products are out. Maybe you've got 30 minutes, maybe you've got an hour that you can dedicate to doing some training. So our, our, our online content has really gotten small and so utilizing the concept of micro learning, uh, most of those computer modules are about 10 to 15 minutes in length. Now, satellite, for example, when GOES-R uh, was launched and we did all the foundational satellite training, there were 43 modules. That's a lot of modules, but they were all in 10 to 15 minute lengths. So if you had a little spare time, you could go ahead and do your modules and move on. One last item on this is, is memory jogger training. And so maybe you've been trained on something, but it's been quite a while since you've seen it. We're utilizing new technology to have some training modules, short videos or short little documents on the workstations that our forecasters are using. So if, for example, they're looking at satellite data and they're like, gosh, I haven't used this since last winter, they can do a simple right click, it pops up a a user guide and they're like, oh yeah, I remember how that works. So a lot of innovative ways to, to, To train people, but also help them remember what they've already forgotten.
1: That's a fascinating statistic around YouTube. If it's more than two minutes, they're not going to watch or they're going to lose attention. Unfortunately, that's probably too much of our society with the quick videos. Uh, have you thought about, you know, Vines and, and you know, the, the quick, the 10-second the videos? That, that could be another uh, in 10 years a pattern that we all can have to put up with. This yeah, thing. absolutely.
2: We've not done that. Uh, I did have the opportunity once to have coffee with the Starbucks CLO. I, I don't, I was hoping it was Starbucks. But at that point, I think they had the shortest training video in in the world, I don't know if it's been broken, but apparently if you forgot as the barista how to uh, put the perfect froth on a latte, in six seconds on the cash register, you can remind yourself.
1: That's awesome, awesome. (laughs) One of the things when you talk about the setting the foundation, and there's a time and a place for both online and in residence, I think a lot of agencies are looking at, well, everything should be online. We should move everything to a learning management system and a platform and, and away from that in person. How do you find that balance? What have you guys done beyond the hands-on stuff with, as you mentioned, the radar? You don't want someone sticking their hands into a you know, 10,000 volt system for the first time uh, when they have to fix it. But, but when you're talking about more of the, if you will, softer skills or, or even some of the technology skills, how do you balance that in person versus online?
2: And it, it takes a lot of analysis, to be honest, uh, it, because the, the demand is there to, to use the learning management system. We have one. Uh, we are heavy users of that learning management system uh, because it, it helps us track completions of training and things like that. But there's a time and a place for face to face as well. And so it just it comes down to a hard analysis. It comes down to what your budget is. And you know, distance learning is not cheap either. In fact, a distance learning computer-based module is going to cost more than an in-residence thing. And so it comes down to uh, your audience size. You know, if you have to train 30 or 50 people, it would actually be less expensive to bring them together in one room and and do that training. If you're having to train thousands of people, then if you've got 3,000 completions of a training module, You know the cost per completion goes way down so you're doing a cost benefit analysis but you're also looking at what does the person really need you know do we need to have that and and we do our management training in person they're new supervisors maybe they haven't had difficult conversations with employees in the past you know we don't want to teach that off a powerpoint slide and someone narrating yeah we want to role play we want to put them in scenarios and say well you've got a poor performer you're going to bring that person into your office now let's have that conversation and our instructors play devil advocate or there are other students plays that played devil's advocate and, and try to poke holes in it. And, and, and so you can calmly have that difficult conversation with somebody and you've done it for real. Uh, and that's a better preparation for if, and when the time comes that you have to have that conversation.
1: I really liked the, the concept of that memory jogger training. If you haven't used something in a while, but you've used it before kind of as a quick hitter. Where did that come from? Did you guys think of that yourselves, or did you beg, borrow, steal it from somebody else? Uh, I, I don't know that I've had a unique idea ever in my life.
0: So <laughs> That's <laughs> borrow, not true. I
2: from the best. Uh, yeah, it, again, networking with other chief learning officers, uh, certainly working with my predecessors. You know, this position's new uh, within five years to the Weather Service, but I said we, we have a rich, rich history in doing training in the Weather Service. It's just the main difference is that we've been moved up the corporate ladder a little bit, and we've got a lot more support today than we had maybe 10 years ago. So it really goes back to networking and and finding out what's going on in the private sector, finding out what's going on with other government agencies, even within NOAA and the Department of Commerce. Uh, You know, we're learning all the time and and identify those things that will work for us in our workforce.
1: Talk about the courses and how some are online and some are in person. How do you guys go about developing those courses? Has that changed your approach over the years with different you know, technologies and, and different approaches? Absolutely.
2: You know, in the Weather Service, we're actually fairly large as far as training departments go, at least when I compare them to NOAA and Commerce, which is the ones I'm um, most familiar with. Uh, we've got about 60 federal employees nationwide between Silver Spring here in Kansas City, uh, Boulder and Norman. But we also have around 20 Cooperative Institute staff through different universities that help us out with training. And the big shift has been, you know, those folks by and large are uh, subject matter experts but we also have instructional designers on staff. And so they help us with the overall design of the course to where it promotes adult learning. And then we utilize our instructors as the subject matter experts because many of them have already worked in the field as electronics technicians or meteorologists or hydrologists or whatever the case may be. So uh, it, it's a real blend, but the the... The way we stay modern is to have those instructional designers that we work with because they're really staying on the cutting edge of what's working and what's not working in the training world.
1: And this also leads us down the path of the field offices because at the same time, you can do a lot of work at the headquarters and you can do training, but sometimes a certain part of the country needs a specific type of training, I imagine, from a weather forecasting, from a different technologies. If you're in the tornado alley versus you're in the you know mudslides and, and rainstorms and, and snowstorms, Talk about the field offices and how you kind of bring them into this development, this strategy of, of training.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the magic in the sauce, if you will. I had mentioned we have 122 forecast offices. We have nine national centers. Every one of those offices has a science and operations officer. And that person in those offices is kind of that local training expert, that local training point of contact. And so while we developed a nationwide training Um, that those people out there can really tailor it to their local office. So, you know, the training needs for Key West, Florida are different than Duluth, Minnesota, for instance. You know, certainly preparing for hurricanes versus winter storms and blizzards and things like that. So we work very closely with those field offices to collect those needs and the regional offices to collect those needs. And then we try to find that balance. And this is the hard part is trying to find that balance between what are the field needs? What do they really need to do their, their jobs? day-to-day and balance that with national initiatives like Weather Ready Nation and Evolve, where we're trying to institute uh, impact-based decision support services, where we're trying to institute a culture that is flexible and adaptable uh, and, and, and trying to serve the customer better, not just being a scientist, but being that communicator. So uh, it, it's an interesting puzzle, but it's something that's uh, overall working fairly well.
1: Are you meeting with those science and operations officers weekly monthly to talk training to talk through kind of hey there's a good idea in duluth that maybe key West could use
2: yeah absolutely yeah we meet every other week uh every other thursdays uh we're meeting with those regional representatives who represent those field offices so uh, we're giving them updates every every two weeks to let them know what we're working on and also to listen to them to see what their needs are uh, they are key in helping us identify Uh, what what the training needs are as we move into new fiscal years. Um, Just about to go to our annual operating plan meeting for the National Weather Service headquarters uh, coming up here at the end of July. And so I can bring that information to the table and identify what those needs are, what the costs may be, so we can try to work it out within the budget.
1: Has there ever been a time where someone brought something to your attention and then you've kind of expanded that across the entire National Weather Service? Absolutely. Uh, A lot of the great
2: ideas uh, come that way. Uh, a great example of that is an enhanced hurricane messaging course, and it's held down at Miami in the, uh, at the National Hurricane Center. Uh, we host that training, but it started from the field. It was a group of science officers from Florida who said, you know what? We have to have a better way of communicating hurricane messages and hurricane impacts to our public and to our, our customers. And so they started off on their own and created what was a really good program. And it was such a success that it bubbled up through their region and up to national headquarters now. And now it's, it's something that we host all the time. And it's even expanded to the Pacific Basin set. In fact, we had our very first uh, Pacific Basin uh, hurricane messaging course in Honolulu uh, a little bit earlier this year. So uh, it's a great example of, of bottom-up management. The ideas come from the bottom. And the ones that are really uh, working their way up through the system, then we can get behind, fund, and, and, and make them great.
1: All right, that's such a great news story because a lot of people give the government such a little bit of a bad reputation of never being able to learn and, and share and uh, that's a great example so thank you for that. Let's take a break. My guest is John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer at the National Weather Service which is part of NOAA in the Department of Commerce. I'm Jason Miller and you're listening to the discussion providing a modern
0: learning experience sponsored by
1: Cornerstone On Demand on Federal News Radio part of the Federal News Network.
0: Numbers tell us a lot like 64, the percentage of government agencies who think they fall short on talent management programs. That leads to unhappy employees. When people are checked out, it reflects on their work and your agency. One, that's the number of talent management solutions you need to engage your employees. Do it all with Cornerstone. Stay compliant while giving people tools to meet development goals. Agencies thrive by helping their people realize their potential. Stay successful with FedRAMP authorized Cornerstone. Cornerstoneondemand.com.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion, providing a modern learning experience sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is John Ogren, the chief learning officer of the National Weather Service, which is part of NOAA inside the Department of Commerce. John, we talked a lot about in the last segment how training happens, meaning how you develop the courses, where those ideas come from, the role the field offices play. At the same time, there are busy times of the year, without a doubt. Hurricane season starts in April. I'm sure starting in March or or even February, you guys are, are ramping up for hurricane season. And then once you get through hurricane season, which I think ends in November, you have winter season starts. And that, again, creates a need for different types of training. So I think you guys use the term seasonal readiness Talk a little bit about how that fits into your role as the Chief Learning Officer.
2: And that's retraining, right? That's sharpening the saw. That's getting prepared for the next season. So you're absolutely right. As we move into hurricane season, we've been training hard over the past several months during the, quote, off season to prepare for this year. So it's it's scientific. It's also how do we better communicate. It's also, you know, make sure that our equipment's up and running. All of those offices throughout the Central Plains and, and the East Coast are preparing for severe weather season. So. Oftentimes when we're in the middle of a winter storm, uh, we may also be starting to train for the next upcoming severe weather season, whether it be hurricanes or tornadoes, flash floods, whatever the case may be. So we're trying to stay ahead of that. And that's not new training. So we've already developed this training, but then we give the opportunity to the forecasters to kind of sharpen that saw. you know how can they knock the rust off if you will? Uh, remember some of the things maybe they forgot over the, over the previous season and to, to really be prepared uh, to meet the mission when, when the time comes.
1: Is it also a matter of looking at it? So, for instance, let's just role play real quick. as from a trainer. You, you guys will do that a lot. Uh, we have the winter season. It still feels like it's middle of summer, but it's coming up. Are you guys looking at the training that you did last winter and say, okay, what lessons did we learn that we can now apply? And whether it may just be a new course or a tweak, or how often does that happen and when does it happen? Yeah, we we are continually
2: updating our courses, so it, it, it's a great example for this upcoming winter. Here we are in June, about to approach July. You know, in the August September timeframe is really when we're going to be doing our winter weather training, and so during the summertime is when our instructors are making tweaks to that existing training that's out there. They're bringing in new satellite data if there's new new technology that's being implemented, uh, and and we also do what something that's called service assessments. So. Anytime there's a major disaster, major weather event, whether it's a hurricane, tornado, flood, whatever the case may be, we do an internal assessment. And so we go and we talk to the media. We talk to emergency management and say, hey, uh, we had this big disaster. How did we do? You know, what worked? What didn't what can we do better? And we get a lot of feedback from both the field officers, the, the, the field forecasters, as well as our partners And that, okay, yes, this worked, this didn't, and here's something we could do differently. And so we can integrate those new best practices into our training for that upcoming season.
1: At the same time, you also have, for instance, let's look out this past winter. It was a very wet winter, a lot of snow in the mountains, a lot of, uh, especially in the West Coast, California is finally out of their drought. Does that mean you have to kind of, hey, bring in that training that maybe we haven't had to use because... You know, more more water means a uh, higher chance of, of uh, fires. Does that play into also your, your training? Do you have to bring stuff back into it when when the weather changes, when things, if you will, ebb and flow?
2: Yeah, it does ebb and flow, and you certainly have a new emphasis, in, and you're right. With the, the snowy winter, we've got a lot of snowmelt going on in the Rockies. We have a lot of flooding ongoing in the Midwest right now, and so, uh, you know, we, we really needed to sharpen our skills on dealing with flash floods as well as river floods, because uh, that's been a huge story throughout the the middle part of the country. And, you know, it it just depends, you know, we've got to be flexible and adaptable because the weather's always changing.
1: When you look across your your portfolio of training, of education, of understanding kind of your role and your strategy as the chief learning officer, are there certain challenges you face day in and day out that maybe other CXOs maybe don't face as much? I mean, from your perspective, you're more cheerleader than the person banging their fist saying, do what I say.
2: The biggest challenge is trying to meet all the needs. And and it's difficult because there's, you know, it's reality. No matter what business you're in, uh, you could always use more resources. Uh, you can, there's always going to be more demand. There's more need than you've got resources to cover, and so the real challenge is trying to find that sweet spot. And, you know, how do you really serve the field the best, and also implement those national initiatives that we're trying to do? You know, we're juggling a lot of budget portfolios. You know, most of the managers are dealing with one pot of money. I'm dealing with six pots of money. And so it drives my budget officer crazy, but uh, she does a fantastic job. So it, it's it's unique in that it, that we're also kind of quasi act like a entrepreneurial part of government, and that we're working with uh, our customers to find out what the demand is, and then we're working with our stakeholders uh, and and the funders to try to make sure that we can we can uh, get the, the the resources that we need. So I think it does make it a little bit unique. Uh, it's a tough puzzle to solve, but it's, it, it's a lot of fun, actually, because, you know, my role as a CLO, uh, I, I, I know a lot about training. I've got staff who are much bigger experts in training than I am or, or will ever be. Uh, my role is to, to try to fight and get them the resources they need so they can do their job and meet the needs of the field.
1: You talk about your role a little bit. Maybe we should go down that path because your role has also changed. You said you've been in it, I think you said about three years?
2: 30 years in government. But th- uh, yeah, officially as a chief learning officer for about three years.
1: And, and that's also changing in terms of what your role is. And, and each role at an uh, agency for the CLO is a little different. Can you maybe just talk through kind of what your day-to-day is? Uh, you know, Give me, give me a sense of, of how that day-to-day also changes in terms of whether it's the uh, st- Seasonal readiness piece or what what season you guys are in to to mm-hmm. ensure you're, you're meeting your mission?
2: Yeah, most most of my days are I'm a I'm a government employee. I, I spend a lot of time on on conference calls, uh, but again, I'm, I'm remote from D.C., so I'm working daily uh, with the Weather Service headquarters folks in Silver Spring. I'm back there about every six weeks on average. So I'm interacting with our, our stakeholders and our funders all the time. But I'm also working with the, the, the field offices and, and our regional headquarters uh, all the time as well, trying to identify the best resources out there. How it's really changed is that uh, becoming a part of senior leadership. Uh, and so I'm interacting with the director, the deputy director, the chief financial officer, the chief operations officer uh, all the time and, and trying to, to make sure that we've got the resources we can to, to do the job. You know, in the past, it had been working a lot with the field and collecting those those uh, requirements and, and what their field needs are for training uh, and, and trying to make that balance. And, and, and as I mentioned earlier, acting more entrepreneurial uh, you know, how can we come up with creative solutions to our training needs uh, that fit within our budget? And so you tend to run a little bit more like a business than, than a government agency uh, might, might necessarily do. So it has been a real mental shift for me and I found myself training and uh, working on business classes and, and sales and managing and project management and things like that because I, hopefully that
1: makes me a better chief learning officer as well. And do you miss the, your days as a meteorologist? Do you sometimes want to roll uh, the sleeves up and get involved in in, in a big weather event? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I mean,
2: it, it, it's in your blood. Um, and I don't miss the shift work by any means. I, I understand why people don't like working rotating shifts. Uh, I did it for a number of years, but uh, I'm still a, a weather geek at heart. Uh, I've got, you know, the radar apps on my phone. Uh, We had a tornado that occurred here a couple of weeks ago. I was out of town at a different conference and I was sitting at dinner just completely geeking out and watching this storm go by. Uh, Actually, freaking out a little bit too because the track of the tornado was going close to home. So, you know, doing my own radar interpretation, watching the Weather Service radars, texting with my family, helping and making sure that they're taking shelter uh, just as everybody ought to be.
1: And everything was okay.
2: Yeah, fortunately, uh, there there was a lot of damage on, on the southwest part of town, and fortunately, the tornado dissipated before it went over our area. Uh, but uh, you know, that's just the way tornadoes go, and we got lucky this time.
1: Uh, good good news for your family and obviously your home, uh, John. We're just about out of time before I let you go. We spent a lot of time talking about the current state of training. We talked a lot of we spent a lot of time talking about where you've been and how you got to where you are today. If we have this conversation again in two years and three years, where do you see your role as the CLO and more, more or less training and education at the National Weather Service going?
2: I think a big part of it is is doing things like this and, and talking about what we're doing and some of our success stories. But in addition to that, working more with the external partners to, to learn more, to find best practices across other parts of government, other parts of uh, the private sector. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful that, that we're serving our field better because ultimately they're my my customer. Uh, Are we getting them the training they need at the right time so they can do the job and meet the mission of the weather service and that is saving lives and property.
1: Very nice. Uh, let me thank my guest today, John Ogren, the Chief Learning Officer of the National Weather Service, which is a part of NOAA in the Department of Commerce. John, thank you so much for your time and your flexibility with doing the video teleconference. This is, worked out great. I yeah, appreciate it. Thanks much. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to the discussion, providing a modern learning experience, sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search
0: Cornerstone. Panel discussion, Transforming Federal HR Processes. Sponsored by Cornerstone On Demand on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.